Good morning, everybody. Welcome to From the Deep End here for this, um, what is it, June 28th. Um, good to be with you this morning. Of course, my name is Jonathan Jenkins. We are here every Monday through Thursday at um, 8 a.m. Eastern. As you can tell, that's when we're starting right now. And we are here until 10 o'clock every day. Um, we do a couple things here on this program. The first hour, we uh, talk about your Bible questions. Anything that is on your mind, uh, we are more than welcome or well, more than happy to uh, do our best to give you a Bible answer to whatever question relating to the Bible uh, is on your mind. Uh, and I'll try to give you the best answer that I can. Uh, sometimes that answer is I don't know. Sometimes that answer is uh, there are people better qualified than I am. That's probably should be the answer most of the time. But uh, uh, we try at least to get you down the road a little bit closer to your answer if it, if it has a connection to the biblical text at all. Uh, sometimes you just can't get the can't get that that answer all the way to the finish line. Sometimes there's just not enough um, 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 information in the Bible to, to get you there. But we try to at least get you started and uh, be as faithful to the text as we can while we are uh, trying to do that for you. Um, second hour of the program, we engage in a textual study of the Bible, and we are currently in First Peter, about to start First Peter chapter 2 uh, this morning. So looking forward to that. I hope you'll stick around and uh, uh, to participate with that uh, with us. Um, um, I got a couple of questions. We had one from yesterday uh, that I need to get to. Uh, from, I believe it was Ronald yesterday, who had a question about Second Peter uh, chapter 3. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for uh, reminding me of that. Um, I do see one here from Christine, though, that I may take first, just because I think I can um, uh, get that one maybe a little more quickly, and that way it won't get lost and get buried in the feed, and um, can get that one answered for you a little bit. So let, let's go ahead and get started. Oh, before we do that, um, uh, Truth Tuesday will not be on today. Um, Daryl is, um, uh, Daryl's been having some issues, um, and he's, uh, I think he's developed another blockage and I, the surgery that I believe he was supposed to have, they had to put off for some other complications and now he's developed another blockage. Um, uh, and so Daryl, I don't think Daryl's doing particularly well right now. Um, he, he got, I think he got home. If I, if I read the messages properly, I think he got home from the hospital and, uh, just too tired to do the show. And so Truth Tuesday will not be on today, but keep Daryl in your prayers. Uh, he continues to struggle. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, so keep Daryl in your prayers. Um, so Truth Tuesday will not be on, but uh, Christianity Now will be on at 11 o'clock. Uh, and then Paul Mays at one o'clock this afternoon. And then Melvin Ote tonight uh, for the Connect meeting at seven o'clock Eastern. So that's what we have on tap for the rest of the day. Um, Keep uh, yeah, keep all that in mind, and let's go ahead and get started. Let me go ahead and get Christine's question up here, because I think I can get that one done pretty quickly, because that one was Second Peter 3. Well, I could either, that, that Second Peter 3 question is one that I could either do in, uh, you know, probably about eight seconds, or I could spend the whole entire hour on it. It's uh, it's one of those type, type questions. Um, but Christine asked us to, to ask, can you define forsaking the assembly? And of course, uh, that language is taken from for, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 25. Um, and 
Um, many of you would, many of the audience would already know the verse. Um, but it says, hold on, get my screen share going here. Um, there we go, there we go, there we go. All right. Um, starting in verse number 24, let's just do, well, let's start, start in, let's eh, start in 24. It, you really should probably start all the way up in about verse 19 or so, but let's go ahead and just start in 24 for the sake of, uh, uh, getting started. Uh, let us consider verse 24, uh, how to stir, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit, uh, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one, one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, and then Christine, I really think the, um, the phrase, um, um, in the beginning of verse 26, I think it's pretty helpful in, in, understanding the 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 limits or maybe the as you say the definition of uh, ESV has neglect not neglecting to meet together the old, old King James has uh you know do not forsake the 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 assembly um as 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 your question is worded uh but I really think the verse just <clears throat> tongue-tied this morning give me just a second here uh the start of verse number 26 is really I think helpful in in defining that because you know, look at the first word there, verse 26, 4, and then it says, if we go on sinning deliberately. So all of this that's talked about up here in the in the upper portion is this idea of, of a deliberate or, or willful sin. I think King James says, if we go on sinning willfully. Um, and so that seems to be, uh, to me at least, helpful in understanding it. The, the, the either, whether you, <laughs> seriously, I'm struggling to, put the words out of my mouth this morning must be early y'all y'all awake this morning because apparently i'm not all right let's let's start try that again not neglecting to meet together versus forsaking the assembly the neglecting and forsaking pretty much the same word i don't think there's a whole lot of translational difference there and uh both of them are fine translations of the of the greek there's not there's not a lot there in terms of you know, some kind of, if I could show you the etymology of a particular Greek word, you'd have some new insight. There's not really. It's pretty much, uh, um, it pretty much is translated just the way it is. But really what we're talking about is what is the difference between missing times together with the church and forsaking? Um, and that that's a, that's a, you know, that's an important distinction. Uh, there are times, obviously, when um, we all miss services from, from of the, during, in the assembly, uh, that happens all the time. But what's the difference between that and forsaking? I, don't, I think that phrase in verse 26 is really helpful. If we go on sinning deliberately, if, if you, make a, you make a choice to put something else in place of coming together with the saints. And by the way, I, I don't know that the term assembly in the King James and the meet together uh, in the ESV is necessarily talking about um, Sunday morning. You know, when we come together for that worship hour on Sunday morning. Um, I think it's just talking about the congregating of the church, the gathering of the church, you know, and, and keep in mind the churches in the first century, you know, the, this book of Hebrews is probably written to Christians in Jerusalem and, and Jerusalem as a city in terms of the square miles uh, within the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, when I, when I lived in Houston, there were subdivisions bigger than the, the footprint of, of the city of Jerusalem. So it's when you're talking about the assembling together and these people being in their houses together daily and and so on, uh, you know they were they were right next door to each other a whole lot more in a sense than than we are. You know, like I live, 
35 miles from the church that I attend. Uh, and because of the kind of streets that are between me and the church building, it takes me as near as makes no difference an hour to get to the church, the, the building where I worship. Well, there's, there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of daily communion with me and, and the other members of the, of the church where, where I attend. Uh, that, that's just, that's, I'm, I'm an hour away. That's if they come see me or if I come see them, that's a two hour trip. Uh, that, that, that doesn't happen as much as perhaps it would have in Jerusalem. So our, our circumstances are a little different. Um, so they, they were together a lot more. I, I think it would be helpful to understand also the, to appreciate the, the context of the book of Hebrews. And there were some very definitive lines being drawn. There were Christians who were turning back to Judaism to think they thought to save their lives, to make their lives better. And the point of the Hebrews writer is at the get that down to the end of this same chapter, keep on enduring, don't give up. And where is it? Don't, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. Uh, do not shrink back and be destroyed because the city in which they were living was very literally about to be destroyed by the Roman armies. And I believe all of that needs to be factored into what's going on here. You know, th this, this, is, this is not somebody choosing not to be there on a Wednesday night for a Bible study because their kids have a, have a, a, a ball game. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but this is a little different than that. This is people willfully not showing up um, over and over and over again because they were trying to avoid persecution. They were, they were trying to fall back into their complete Jewish life. Um, and so while, while I do think the principle we take from this verse and, hey, you know, don't, don't, don't start prioritizing other things in your life other than coming, to, coming together to worship or whatever with the saints, uh, believe that's a valid principle, and, and I still use the verse that way. And it's, a, I think, a very, you know, very, very easy use of the verse, and not something that's um, out of bounds at all. But I do believe the the context here is perhaps even deeper than that. Is that it was a clear indication, not just that you, you were you got busy in life, because that that happens to people. Not not because not not because of all the things that we have often that distract us. You know, this is not somebody being distracted. This is somebody making a willful choice, a deliberate choice to draw back into their former way of life. Uh, and I believe that's the basic thought there. So, um, you know, keep your priorities right. You need, to, you need to be there every time the doors are open if you can. But uh, this verse probably has within its specific context in the first century, probably has a little bit more going on there than just, um, um, just uh, you know, I, I get, kids got a ball game tonight, so I'm not going to be there. It, it's probably a little deeper than that. Uh, but yeah, as Jonathan says, the word assembling is key. It means every time the church gathers. And I believe that's probably right in terms of what's going on here. This was a community. This was a family. And the family was drawing together. And when the family draws together, you, sh you show up, sit down at the table and eat. Right? Um, but um, I, I'm just, I, the only distinction I would draw is I don't know that their motivations were our motivations that their motivations were we're, we're we are under persecution and we're going to avoid the persecution by blending back into the jewish community uh often when we use this verse we're just talking about people being distracted and caring about the cares of this world um so not that that invalidate, invalidates the application of the verse but you know the immediate consequences are different right so i'll just i'll just stop there but i believe that's what it's talking about uh, it is what it what it what it is, of course, is some kind of um, uh, deliberate.
action. Okay. Um, so let me go ahead and get to that second Peter three question. So I don't want to miss it today. Um, second Peter three question, if I remember correctly, and again, thank you, Jonathan, for reminding me that I needed to address this. The second Peter three question, um, I remember the, the specific question about second Peter three verses 10 and following was, are we going to spend, um, eternity, if you can spend eternity, uh, in heaven, or is it going to be on the earth again, um, on some kind of renewed earth? There are two passages that people uh, tend to use, try to use, to establish that um, what we have in our future is a restored, regenerated earth, right? Um, and one of those is Romans chapter 8. Now, if you have been with us on From the Deep End, you know we spent about nine months studying through the book of Romans. And we spent a solid month and a half of that nine months. It was about 30 lessons, so maybe almost two months, uh, just in Romans 8. It's one of the most significant passages in the all, all of the Bible, certainly within the New Testament. Uh, and we spent a good deal of time dealing with that section from 18 down to 25. Obviously, I do not have time to go back over that material here. Uh, I would encourage you, as you have opportunity, uh, to go and um, examine that material um, and, um, um, you know, consider it. Um, the other passage people come to <clears throat> in order to try and establish that we will live on a restored earth is First uh, Peter, or Second Peter, rather, Second rather, uh, Peter 3, rather. Um, and we'll start here in verse number 9. Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing, <clears throat> again, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Uh, but the day of the Lord will come, and then the heavens will be passed away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be uh, burned up and dissolved, uh, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Okay? Um if you know, if you can see that, be if it's not too small on your screen, um, that word "exposed" in, translated in ESV um, is the ESV footnotes it as being some manuscripts say will be burned up, and the King James, if I'm not mistaken, translates it along those lines, and that really gets to the um, to the to the crux of the matter here. Uh, a lot of the people <clears throat> who hold to the doctrine that we will live on a new heaven, a new heaven and a new earth being a restored heaven and a restored earth look to um, this word here um, and say that what's going to happen here is not that they will disintegrate, not what that they will be annihilated, but the, the corruption in them will be exposed and then they will be renewed, released from the futility as is mentioned over in, in Romans chapter 8. Um, I don't actually think that has much to do with the meaning of the passage. Um, I, don't, I don't particularly give a whole lot of credence to either either um, a variant of the interpretation or, uh, yeah, of the translation, rather, of the Greek word here. Um, I don't think that's critical to understanding what the text is talking about. Uh, if you have been with me for more than about six minutes as we study the Bible together, you should know by now I am very, very uh particular about making sure, first of all, for New Testament text, we leave the text in the um, first century. 
and we make sure we understand to whom the author is writing. All right? Because you come to 2 Peter chapter 2, and you say, verse number 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Okay? Is patient toward you. All right, and here comes our favorite drink again. When I ask you, you who? I don't think people take the time to answer that question. I think people look at that, and the, the immediate assumption is you means all Christians or all people. You, just everybody. Why? Why do you think that? Why, why, the why of why you think that is because you, you, people, when people study the Bible, they don't make any attempt to leave the Bible in a first century context. They don't. I mean, that, that's the main, main problem here. We haven't gotten to Second Peter yet, and I haven't decided. I mean, it seems reasonable for once we finish First Peter, let's just go ahead and finish it up and do Second Peter. I haven't gotten that far in my thinking yet. But you know what I've said about First Peter, that it's written to the elect exiles of the dispersion, the dispersia, the dysphoria, rather. It's Jewish. I believe the audience in First Peter is largely Jewish. Peter, Galatians chapter 2, when Peter and Paul meet and they and they they extend the right hand of fellowship to one another, and they 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 acknowledge the validity of each each person's ministry. Um, that they agreed that they would make sure that they cared for the poor, all that kind of stuff. Paul's commentary about that meeting was uh, that to James was committed. James and Peter was committed the gospel to the circumcision, and to Paul the gospel to the uncircumcision. Okay, that's not an insignificant concept. Peter says, I am writing to, I am writing to, uh, or, or rather, or, or Paul says rather that Peter is taking the gospel to the circumcision, which of course would be the Jews. And that is the dysphoria, the elect dysphoria uh, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Okay? You get to 2 Peter, and Peter says, to those who obtain, obtained a, a, a faith equal in standing with ours by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, grace and mercy be multiplied unto you, all right? And then he, he goes down through, through all of this, um, and he says, therefore I intend always to uh, remind you of these qualities so that you may know who they are, very similar to the, uh, to the first letter. Very much of this first chapter sounds a whole lot like uh, the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the first letter. And as you read through the, the, the text of Second Peter, Peter says very clearly, this is now the second epistle that I am uh, writing to you. Hold on. What's that from Deborah on the screen? Um, from Robbie Eversole's daughter, please pray. Daddy's had a setback with lots of pains and elevated ST levels. Don't know what an ST level is. Um, He's been given three rounds of nitro, and they are about to call a cardiologist. He's supposed to have a scope and potential shock this morning, but they are trying to figure out what is going on. Um, that does not sound wonderful at all. Um, so let's, um, as we have been doing, let's make sure we keep uh, Brother Robbie in our prayers. Um, uh, he is, a, he is, a, and there's Alexa trying to talk to me. Um, uh, let's let's just keep robbing our prayers. Um, that that is um, that is not good to hear. Hopefully, that is not something that is um, 
uh, going to be troubling. Um, but in but in the beginning of chapter three, to back to back to our thought there, um, chapter three, verse one. Now this now this is the second letter I am writing to you. So the audience of the second book is the same as the audience of the first book. The second letter to them. And if the first letter is largely Jewish, guess what I'm going to tell you about the second letter? It's largely Jewish. Further, earlier we have to answer the Lord, verse 9, the Lord is not slow um, to fulfill his promise. What promise? Okay. What promise? Back up here. Okay. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder. That's why we stopped in chapter 1, and you have that uh, statement. I, I try to remind you of these things. Same thing in First Peter. That you should remember the predictions of the holy apostles and the, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, uh, following their own sinful desires. Okay? What predictions of the apostles and of the Lord would be relevant here about scoffers and troubles coming in the last time, in the last days. All right. Well, go back to Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13 for, for, for Jesus' commentary on that. Uh, you can go to uh, uh, other texts uh, throughout the New Testament that deal with, that deal with these uh, 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 last days events, First and Second Timothy. I would include Romans 8 and other passages as well. There are a lot of passages that talk about exactly that. that. The book of Jude obviously does as well. Okay. What promise did the Lord make about the last days? And where is the promise of his coming? Well, we just read some things about that. We read about the, not, not today, but we read about it a few days ago where somebody was asking about the, some of that figurative language over in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Mark 13, and so on. Okay, the promises of our, and this, was, this is critical, the, 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 the predictions of the holy apostles and the commandment of our Lord and Savior. So th th this, this goes all the way back to him from the, from the prophets and through the apostles. All right. You have to go back and see those predictions. So until you identify what is the promise, you're not going to get it right. Right? So I believe what we're talking about here is not the end of the time in the world. Okay? Verse 7, however, says the same word, but by the same word, the heavens that and earth that now are are stored up for fire, being kept up until the day of the judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem. Or destruction of Jerusalem, how about that? The destruction of the ungodly. Okay. And then he says, the Lord is not slow fulfilling his promise, the promise of his coming, as some men count slowness. But he is being patient toward you, you, the people to whom I am now writing this second letter the elect exiles of the dysphoria. I think that's Jewish. I think that's Jewish. All right? He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some people count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish. Neither was Paul. My heart's desire and prayer to Israel that they should be saved. Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. That was his desire. God's was exactly the same. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophets. How long, he said, well, I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings. Right? That, that's what I've wanted to do for you. But you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't come. 
So there, there, we, there we are in this problem once again. I think we're talking here about the, the, the salvation or the destruction of the nation. But that each should, repeat, re, 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 each should reach repentance, that the day the Lord will come thief in the night, the heavens will pass away with the war, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and destroyed. Okay? I think that's actually Matthew 24, verse 30. I think that's Matthew 24, verse 30. Um, and here we get to that problem. And this is why I say I think, because there is a very critical feature to get in any of this, what is referred to by many as apocalyptic language in the Bible. This language can refer to any number of different events. Just because it says the heavens will pass away with the roar doesn't mean we're at the end of time. It could, and that's why I, and that's why I say I think. This could very easily be a statement of the end of the world. Uh, and it's one passage that I um, waffle on from time to time. I've had, you know, right now, I'm, on the, I'm of, the, of, the, of the, excuse me, of the opinion that this is uh, Matthew 24, verse 30. Okay. And other times in my life, I've held that this is the end of the world. So, you know, ask me Tuesday. You know, it is Tuesday. Ask, ask me Thursday, and I may have a different answer for you on this because I go back and forth on it. But I do believe this patient, that that's kind of what I'm thinking right here, is patient toward you. Okay, it's not, he's not saying that he's patient toward generations down the stream of time. That this, that he is slow to fulfill the promise of his coming, or he's not slow, because he's being patient toward you. And I think he's talking about the people who read this book the first time, which means the impending judgment is waiting for the people who are reading this book and obviously the, the, those that are attached to them, those who need to be saved now, those who need to repent, that are in their community, which again, I would believe to be Jewish. And he doesn't want any of the natural branch of Romans 11 to die because when he does come and the stars stop to giving their light and, 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 and so on, Matthew chapter 24, when that does happen, it's going to be too late. All of you are going to die, all right? So then we see um, what we're looking for here is down the, the, what I think is the, um, the critical verse here. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Okay, there's that day of judgment, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and, the, and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. Well, that sure sounds like the end of time, doesn't it? Until you read that the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and the sun and the moon will not give their light, and so on. Luke 21, it's the same language. But here, I think, is the thing that really trips people up. But according to his promise, which promise? Okay, we are waiting for the new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now we get to the critical part, okay? It, it does exposed mean destroyed and, 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 and so on. Um, now, for me, this second, this second part here, if you put this at the end of time, this second part to me gets really difficult to say the heaven, the, 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 um, uh, the, the earth is going to be regenerated. You could take this literally here in the next phrase, new heavens and new earth, to say that uh, it's going to replace but you can't say a renewed earth because it's going to be a brand new earth. That's the part, if you're going to take it literally, that's the part for me that trips me up in my thinking and trying to understand what they mean. Because Romans 8 
if you take the creature to mean the, 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 the heaven and the earth, the physical one, then it says it is going to be released from its futility. It doesn't say anything about it being completely dissolved and melting away to be replaced with a new one. New is not releasing from futility. New is new. It's a separate, it's a new earth. So I think there's an inconsistency there, at least something that needs to be explained, right? But at least on this particular Tuesday, my view of this is, this is again equivalent to Matthew 24, 30 in that section. But the problem I think that trips people up is the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because we read that and immediately what do we think? We think heaven, heaven. The problem is it also says earth. And if this is heaven, heaven, and earth, earth, that's a problem. Or if this is heaven, as in the, the, the eternal abode of God, what are we doing with the new earth in that same time? So there's a problem there as well. The problem I have is that we don't use this language properly. Um, that language, if you can see that on the screen where I, where, where I highlight it, look where it comes from, okay? Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. So to answer that, I need to jump us back to Isaiah 65 for a second. Whenever you see a quotation in the New Testament, make sure you go back to the Old Testament and understand where it's coming from. And here is the promise. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and I will be glad in my people. Okay. No more shall it be heard in, in it the sound of weeping, the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Okay, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like those days of a tree, they shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hand. They shall not labor in vain or bear, bear children for calamity or they shall be the offspring of the, uh, for they shall be the offspring of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox and the dust shall destroy the serpent's food. And there shall not any hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, please tell me, which part of that makes it heaven? Which part of that makes it happen? heaven? I mean, the, the verses we go to, to take this to be heaven would be, for example, verse 19. There shall be heard in it there shall no more, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. That sounds a whole lot like Revelation chapter 21, and God shall wipe away the tears from their eyes, right? Okay, let's see if this does it right for me on the ESV. Chapter 35 and verse number 10 says, And the ransom of the of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain um uh, 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 and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. Same language, okay? This is Isaiah 35. 
No lion shall be there. No ravenous beast shall come up into it. There'll be, we're working backwards through Isaiah 35 right now. And there shall be a highway and it shall be called the highway of a holiness. No unclean shall pass over it. Okay. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground shall become springs of waters. Uh, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer. Let's keep going back up. You need to strengthen the hands of the weak. You need to make firm the, 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 knee, we, <laughs> the feeble knees. Uh, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, because your Lord God will come with vengeance he will, and, and with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Keep going back up. Um, the, the, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad and the desert shall bloom. Everything will be abundant joy. The glory of Lebanon, uh, Lebanon shall be given to it. They shall see the majesty and the glory of our Lord. All right. But go back here to verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be un, uh, unstopped. Then the slain man shall leap like a deer, the tongue, uh, and, and the tongue for the mute of the mute will sing for joy, and so on. What's he talking about? When is this going to happen? Okay, this is messianic. This is not talking about the end of the world. This is talking about the coming of Jesus. That, that's what's being talked about here. When the highway of holiness is opened. That, that's the church. That, that's the gospel leading to the church. And it's in that period of time that God prophetically says, all sorrow and sighing will flee away. This language is, is not, not everywhere in the Old Testament, but it is repetitive in the Old Testament. When God restores Jerusalem, restores his nation, the sound of weeping will no longer be heard, all right? Uh, and, and when he comes in judgment, sometimes you'll see the language just reversed. The sound of laughter will not be heard in the city anymore. The problem we don't probably have with an understanding is because we don't read them, we don't read and understand the Old Testament prophets. That's why we don't understand it in the New Testament. The new heaven and the new earth, well, first of all, they shall be the offspring of the Lord blessed and their descendants with them. Are you going to have descendants in heaven? When the new heaven and the new earth come, whether, because there's two views on that primarily, right? Either it's a restored earth or it is uh, actual heaven. Are you going to have descendants? Because in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Who are these descendants? There are no descendants. Uh, um, where is, where he says, and the sinner 100 years old shall be accursed. Where is the sinner 100 years old in either the new heaven, new earth, literal, or the new heaven, new earth, spiritual. Where? Where do you, where do you have this? See, this doesn't fit. Okay? Keep going into 26, or 66, rather. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? Where is that place of my rest? All these things that made my, my, uh, uh, my hand is made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Keep going. He who slaughters an ox like one who kills a man, he who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck, he who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood, he who makes a memorial of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring fears upon them uh, because when I called, <coughs> no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. 
but they did that which was evil in my eyes and chose and chosen that which I did not delight. Keep going. Hear the word of the Lord, who you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you, cast you out for my name's sake, and have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Um, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound I sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. So we got to, we have a call to judgment in the first six verses. God's about to make a choice. He's about to choose. He's about, he about to clearly define who's his and who, who isn't his. All right. And then it says, verse, in verse seven. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before pain came upon her, she delivered, delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be, be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring uh, to the point of birth and not cause uh, to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause uh, uh, to bring forth shut the womb, says your Lord? Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied for the consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with the light for her glorious abundance. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon your hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Having any problems so far? Are, 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 are you in heaven yet as you read through Isaiah 66? Are you talking about Jerusalem? A glorified Jerusalem. That's, that's all I see so far. Verse 14, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. God is going to protect Jerusalem against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Time of judgment is coming. Glorified Jerusalem, time of judgment. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens following one another, Eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice shall come together and shall come at to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will put a sign among them, and I will send them survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, and Javan, to the coastlands far away. We're gathering the nations. The nations have a sign put among them. They see the glory among all the land. Hmm. So Jerusalem's going to be glorified, and a whole bunch of Gentile nations are going to be called to it. Hmm. I wonder what, wonder what we could be talking about. To the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Huh. wonder when that happened. And they shall bring all your brothers from the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations. Have you read Matthew 24? 
He's going to send his angels out and gather his elect from the four corners of the world. Gospel must first go to the Gentile or to the Jews. Going to bring them to the holy mountain Jerusalem. Just as the Israelites bring in that bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them I will take for priests and the Levites. Then here's the tricky verse for everybody, right? For as the new heaven and new earth that I make shall remain before me, so shall your offspring remain also. In this new heaven and new earth, when the nations and the, the, the scattered of the brothers and all of these people bring these clean offerings as priests into the Lord, there will be an eternal uh, stability to it. You and your offspring will remain it before me. Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom shall not be left to another. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to me before me and worship. All flesh continually able to worship God. When did that start? From the rising to the setting of the sun, people from all nations, all flesh, being able to worship God. Huh. Wonder when that started. In heaven? Hmm. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who rebelled against me. They shall do what? They shall go out and look on the dead bodies. There is no going out. Once you get to heaven, there is no going out. There's a great gulf fixed. If you're talking about the renovated new heaven and new earth, um, please tell me what the dead bodies of the men who got called up in the judgments or, or judgment are doing on the new heaven and the new earth. Now, if we're talking here about the church, obviously this is figurative, but are those people there? Now, Actually, in the first century, the people who saw this first, they might actually have been able to do that. They could have gone back to Jerusalem after the judgment and maybe actually seen that. But this we're not talking here about heaven. We're talking about the kingdom. This is the kingdom, Isaiah 65 and 66. We're talking about the kingdom. Revelation 21, how much time do I have? We've got 13 minutes. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride prepared for her husband. Did you just not read chapter 19? Did you not read chapter 19 of Revelation? In chapter 22, when the spirit and the bride say come, um, what do you think is saying come? Or who do you think is saying come? Well, the spirit's going to be the Holy Spirit. Who is the bride that is inviting people to come and to drink of the water of life freely? That new Jerusalem in this new heaven and new earth. The church, the kingdom. And if you continue to read through this, there, there again, there are things in this new Jerusalem that make no sense if we're talking about eternity, okay? Um, 
we have all the descriptions of it as you get down to the to the bottom of it. Um, the city has no need for sun or moon to shine upon it. The, Lord, the glory of the Lord gives its light. By its light, the nation will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut. Wait, what? Heaven, the gates will never be shut. Now, that's not true. There's coming a day when the gates of heaven are shut. And if you're on the restored heaven and earth, new heaven, new earth, please tell me, who are the gates open for? All the evil have been passed, all the evil have been burned up. Who is it that the, 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 the where, where are the nations in heaven? Where are the kings of the earth in heaven or on the new heaven and new earth under the, under the kingdom rule of Jesus? Who are these people? Why are the gates still open? Okay. Um, why is it they are going to bring glory into it and the honor of the nations? Where's the honor of the nations? But nothing unclean will even enter it. Doesn't that sound like somebody who is uh, uh, in the highway of holiness? The unclean shall not walk on the highway of holiness. Down in chapter 22, there's this water of life flowing through the middle of it. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves were for the healing of the nations. Um, sorry, sorry, there are no nations. And once you get to the new heaven and the new earth, if it's the a, a regenerated earth or it's an, a, an expression of the eternal heavenly kingdom, there's no more healing to be done. This thing's wrapped up and finished. Too late, so sorry. There is no more. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Now the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, is the church, the kingdom, right? So is Reve, you know, it, 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 and, and by the way, there's really no difference between the kingdom, the church, the kingdom on the earth and the eternal kingdom, because guess what? One becomes the other. So if you, if you just ask me generically, is Revelation 21 uh, about heaven or is it about the church? My answer to that is yes. My answer to that is yes. Now, let's get back to 2 Peter 3. If I'm, if, so what I'm telling you, my position on this is that this new heaven and this new earth that we are waiting for, well, I'm not waiting for it. I'm in it. I have it. It's here. I'm part of it. Okay. First century saints were still waiting on it. How's that possible? Because the kingdom, the church, came in Acts 2. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's why in, in time past, when we've talked on these topics, I've spent so much time in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, there is the one like the Son of Man who returns to the Ancient of Days. He came to the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, 13. That's Jesus. That's the Ascension. That's Acts 1. Okay? When he returns in Acts 1, he's Acts 2.30, what is it, 2.33? He's by the right hand of God exalted, Hebrews chapter 1. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down by the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where he is. He returns to the ancient of days, and when he does, he is glorified. He, is, he has all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus said. He's given dominion, the glory, and the kingdom that all peoples, language, nations, and languages should serve him. Hold on to that word or that phrase. We're coming back to it, okay? His dominion is everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that should not be ever be destroyed. So it will not be left to another people and so on. But that is when the one like the son of man 
is glorified and given dominion in a kingdom. The remainder of Daniel 12 gives us the fate of the fourth beast in particular. Ten horns, a little one comes up uh, after, after them. He, he should be different than the former ones, and he will put down three kings. That little horn who puts down three kings preceding him is given to, he makes war with the saints of the Most High, thinks to change the times and the law, and the saints of the Most High, Jews, were given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Sound familiar? Should. We've been here before. But at some point, his dominion is taken away. It's consumed and destroyed to the end. So dominion is taken away from the little horn. To whom is it given? Now, he is the leader, I believe, of Rome, the, the, the world power at that time. All, all of the prestige and honor of having the most powerful empire in the world belongs to the little horn. He makes war with the saints of the Most High, and at some point there comes a realization that no, this little horn is no longer the one in charge of this world. It is the people of the Most High that are now the ones in that position. Dominion, kingdom rather, and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people uh, uh, to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall, shall serve and obey him. It is critical to note that the, the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of a kingdom. Now, Jesus in 713 is given kingdom, dominion, and glory. Here, the saints of the Most High are given the greatness of the kingdom. But it is critical to note that does not happen until dominion is taken away from the little horn. Point being, whoever you make that little horn to be, two common views are Vespasian or Domitian. I don't care. For the purposes of this discussion, don't really care. All I know is either it's Vespasian or Dominion, let's go, or Domitian rather, and both of those are 40 to 60 years after Jesus ascends to heaven. It is a gap then of some time, I think closer to 40 years, before the greatness of the kingdom is given to the saints. Jesus already has it. The saints don't get it for another 40 years. That's why I believe that passage over in Hebrews chapter 12 is so critical. Down at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, um, excuse me, went too far there. The Hebrews writer says, verse 25 and following, See that you do not refuse him, him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Sound familiar? Heavens and the earth, sun and the moon. Second Peter 3, same thing. This phrase once more indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, Old Testament Judaism. Hebrews 8, was it 13? That which is old and decaying is ready to vanish away. So I'm going to shake everything. I'm going to shake up the order of everything, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens. I'm going to shake it all. And the things that are temporary, the things that can be moved, the things that can be shaken, the things built by hand, they're all about to be removed in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. And what cannot be shaken? His dominion and his kingdom is an everlasting dominion and kingdom. Okay? Therefore, let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Notice that phrase right there, for receiving a kingdom. That is a present active participle. Okay, the old King James renders it, um, let me see if I can get, get it up here. Wherefore we are, I believe it says, um, since therefore we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There, there is your present active participle. We are receiving, not we have received. That would be AD 30. That would be Acts 2, right? If the kingdom just came in Acts 2, bang, there it is. Okay, it did. It's there. It saves people. The Holy Spirit's in it. Everything works. It's perfectly fine. But that's Acts 2 is Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It's not until the defeat of the little horn that the saints received the same, the same blessing. That is the glory to be revealed in Romans 8. That is the glory that is coming in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 5, okay? That's even the glory that's going to be at the revelation of Jesus Christ that we've studied through in 1 Peter 1. There is going to be a manifestation, the revealing of the sons of God, Romans chapter 8. All of that takes place with the stripping away of the dominion of the little horn from the Roman Empire. When Rome destroyed Jerusalem, they should have destroyed Jehovah. They didn't. Instead, what happened is Daniel 2, that stone that was made without hands, okay? Hebrews 12, the things that can be shaken, that is the things that are made. The stone, the kingdom is made without hands, can't be shaken. When it destroys the dominion of that image in Daniel 2 or the dominion of the little horn of the beast in Revelation Daniel 7, it grows and fills the whole earth. Now, it doesn't throw down earthly kingdoms, but what it shows is you can't destroy this kingdom. There is no, there is no king on the earth with all of the power, even the, the power of the United States military today could do everything it wanted to do. It could not destroy the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will never prevail against this kingdom. It cannot be destroyed. It is the dominion of a great kingdom belongs to Christ and to those kings and priests who live within it, because Revelation says we will be kings and priests upon the earth. That's what happened. When Titus tried to kill the, the worship of Jehovah by destroying his temple, he failed utterly. And there was a manifestation of the glory of the children of God. It was already there, just wasn't really readily apparent. It wasn't revealed yet. It was there, just wasn't revealed. We are receiving a kingdom. This glory that should be ours is about to be ours. Now, very quickly, as I'm about out of time, go back to Daniel 7 again. Daniel 7 says about Christ, that all peoples and nations and languages shall, shall serve him. The same idea down here again, that his dominion and, and so on, all dominions shall serve and obey him. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter seven, have the sealed of the nation of Israel, 144,000. And then we have after these people, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations and tribes and tongues standing before the throne of God. And John asked, who are these people? 
And the man in white robe says, these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. And again, ESV says, who come? It is again, another present uh, participle. Yeah, I think the King James or the ASV, one of them renders those who are coming out of the great tribulation. We are receiving a kingdom and those are coming out of the great tribulation. Out of every nation under heaven. The point of the book of Revelation, one of the key verses in the book of Revelation is Revelation eleven fifteen. Seven angels sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord, kingdoms of our Lord and Savior and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. At the conclusion of the Great Tribulation, it's known, it's clear, it's demonstrated that the kingdoms of this world are now populated by members of the body of Jesus Christ. His kingdom knows no borders. His dominion knows no, no, no there, there's no limit to it on the earth. The saints of the Most High will live in any earthly kingdom that he sees fit to place them in. The gospel will spread and it will spread without borders. The kingdoms of this world, wherever the gospel goes, belong to Jesus. That's the message of the Great Tribulation. You can't destroy this kingdom. Now, I say all that to get us back here into 2 Peter chapter 3. However many texts back that is, I have to type it in. Oh, I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong translation. That's why it's not there. I say all that to get us back here to 2 Peter chapter 3. I think that's what he's being talked about right here. According to his promise that we are receiving a kingdom, that he's going to come in judgment of the nations, Matthew 24 that the glory and the dominion of, 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 a, of, of, a, of a worldwide kingdom is going to be stripped from the little horn. All of that that we just spent 30 minutes going through. According to his promise, we are in the process of receiving a kingdom in which righteousness dwells. The unclean shall never be a part of it, shall never be left to another people. We will be the offspring of God and so, so will our descendants for time ad infinitum. That's what I think it's talking about. Now, uh, like I said, there are things in this text that very easily could be end of time things. Um, uh, that that language up here in 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 um, uh, verse number that's no, not verse number nine. That language up here in verse number seven <clears throat> sure sounds like that could be end of time to me. But I don't believe this part is. Verse thirteen, the thing they are waiting for at this point was not was not the end of the world. The thing that the saints who were suffering, the fiery trial of, um, of, um, of, of the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, the thing that they were waiting for was not the end of the world. Here's what they're waiting for. The souls that are under the altar, those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they borne, they cried aloud with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? They wanted to be avenged. And so you get over to Revelation, what is it, chapter 18, I think, is it 1824? The fall of Babylon, which I believe to be Jerusalem, 
and of her was found all the blood of the prophets and the saints and all those who have been slain on the earth. How long until you avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? I'm going to strike down Jerusalem. I'm going to strike down Babylon. And in her, all the blood of the saints and the prophets, go back to Matthew 23, verses 36 and following, all the blood of the righteous saints shed upon the earth, I, I brought about on her. And when she falls, the wedding feast in chapter 19 takes place. And then look what happens in chapter 20. The millennial reign begins. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Jesus begins to reign in, in the kingdom. And then notice what I see. you see in verse 4. I saw the thrones and seated on, seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ and the, and the work of the Lord and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. How long until you avenge our blood? I'm going to strike down Babylon. And when I do, you who are crying out for vengeance and to be justified and vindicated for your faith, you're going to be. You're going to reign with me for a thousand years. The greatness of a kingdom will be yours. I think that's what he's talking about. And that period, I believe, began at the conclusion of the Great Tribulation. So that's what I think Second Peter's talking about. It's written primarily to Jews, Jews who are on the cusp of the precipice, rather, of this Great Tribulation, actually by this time probably going through it. And so it's talking about those events. Now, as I've said two or three times already, I'll say quickly, as it's already 9.06 and I need to hush. Um, there are things about this text that I change my mind on from time to time. But that gets back to Ronald's question, and that is the best that uh, that I've got with it, all right? But I think it's not a end of the time thing. I think it's prime. Let me say it this way. I think it is primarily a text dealing with the promise of the coming tribulation and of the coming of, of the coming of God to stop the tribulation as is described in Revelation. That's what I think this text is primarily dealing with. Each individual phrase, I'm open to the idea that there are some end of time phrases in it, but I think the text as a whole is taken to the same thing that Daniel and Revelation and Matthew 24 and all of those other texts are talking about. All right. So best I can do with it. I don't really have time to go back through y'all's comments. I, I, I highlighted four, three or four other things. So we already have three or four questions I need to get to for tomorrow. I'll try to remember what those are and get back to them. So, um, Having said all that, I will need to take a break right here, and uh, I will be back um, with you in just a couple of moments, and we will uh, continue our study together of, uh, of First Peter. So uh, just sit tight, and as I said, I'll be right back. Uh, I'll be right back shortly.
All right, everybody, welcome back to uh, From the Deep End, and we'll pick up here our look at the uh, book of First Peter. After we spent so much time in the first hour on Second Peter, I feel like I've already just done my class on Second Peter. <laughs> so, no, there's a lot more to say about Second Peter than that, but uh, let's turn our attention to First Peter. We're going to start in First Peter chapter 2, as soon as I learn how to type the word First Peter uh, into my Bible program so that I can find the... Um, the uh, right text. So here we are. There we go. All right. Um, as I said, we are about to uh, begin in Second uh, Peter. Let me just take a second. I didn't get a chance even to scan through any of those comments during the first hour. Um, um, no. All right. All right. So let's go ahead and. Um, Look at First Peter. We we just finished up um, uh, chapter one um, uh, yesterday, and so we're going to move on all into uh, move on into chapter two. Uh, and as always, I'm going to say once again, uh, please do not allow the um, the change of chapter or or just the passage of time as you're studying to cause you to lose sight of the purpose of a book. All right that that is that that's my message as we study through First Peter. Don't ever lose sight of the purpose of the book. And he tells you the purpose. I've written these briefly to you that you may know that what you've obeyed is the true grace of God. 1 Peter 5, verse 11 or 12. And stand firm in it. Everything in this book is on some level trying to convince these people that what they have done is true and that it's right. And so this word is the word that was... Um, delivered to you. This word, this gospel, uh, this imperishable, this living and abiding word of God, this word that came to you, declared before the foundation of the world, at least established before the foundation of the world, this word which predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glory that was to follow, this word which was prophesied by the prophets, the Jewish prophets to whom you have given your, your allegiance all of all of your life, all of that, all of this was done all the way back up to the start of the book, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. This is the word that was preached to you. This is that good news. So put away all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that you may grow up into it. Okay? This is the word that was preached to you. 
Now, what's going on in our book? What's going on to the recipients of this book? Chapter four, fiery trial has come upon you. Since the fiery trial has come upon you, don't think it's strange. Don't Again, why would you think it's strange? Second Peter, where's the promise of his coming? What's going on? This doesn't make any sense. You know, we signed up for one thing and some, somehow we, we ended up getting something we didn't anticipate, we didn't expect. You know, are you, are you sure we signed up for the right thing? Um, and Peter's, Peter's message to them is, yes, yes, you did. It's enduring. It's by prophecy and so on. But what happens? What happens when times get hard? Right? I mean, have you ever been ever been with a group of people maybe on a trip or something and you get lost? Uh, I mean, don't don't get lost at the same time everybody starts to get hungry because that that's bad. Okay, you know, you, you when you, you're going on a trip with people, keeping people fed is a really important thing unless a bunch of hangry people start walking around, all right? It, it doesn't take much to set us off in, in, in times like that. And what happens as soon as that happens? As soon as you get a little bit tired, a little bit hungry, and something goes wrong on your trip, does it get nice in the car? Do you all start talking real friendly to each other when that happens? No, you don't. And that's over something trivial, something that can be solved with a Big Mac. I mean, that, that's, that, that's all that is. And we start growing and start bickering with one another. Something starts going wrong in the church. You, you hit a little bump in the road in the work of the church. What happens? Parties start forming, cliques start forming, people start drawing sides and taking sides and so on, right? They start, they, it's what happens. That's what we do. It's human nature. It's, it's part of the process. We got, we find somebody to blame. We, we, we get, get into our tribes and we get on e- e- different sides of, of the proverbial, sometimes not proverbial in the church. If you got that one aisle running down the middle, sometimes it's not proverbial. Sometimes that, that, that alley down the middle, that, that aisle down the middle, middle of your building. Yeah. Sometimes that's, that's actual real. <laughs> sometimes you've got two different churches sitting in the same, in the same building, um, have experienced that. Um, that's what happens. Okay. That's what's going on here. Notice what he says back up here. You have purified your souls, all right? And so what we have here is we talked about yesterday, purity of soul, a purity of love, and a purity of heart. Three things of sincerity, three things of purity that need to characterize the Christian life in the midst of trial. Purity of soul, purity of love, purity of heart. In this trial understanding that you have been born again. There is a common heritage there. And I made the point yesterday, I do think that's a callback to to as far back as John 3 and some of the early days of the gathering of the saints under the baptism of John, okay? But the point being that it's not imperishable, or that's not perishable, rather. It is, it, it is... It, it's not, it, it is not, imper- not imperishable is what's tripping you up there. That's like two negatives in a row. The seed you were born, born, have been born with is not perishable. It's imperishable. There I go. I, can, I, I know what words mean, and I use them every day. Uh, it's imperishable. So nothing's changed. Nothing is, nothing is devolved or de- de- degenerated from it. It's still exactly the same. So your love, your, your soul is still pure. Your love should still be sincere and pure. Your heart should still be pure right? Because all the stuff you see around you is perishing. So the trials that you see around you, all all of the the familial ties that maybe you're tempted to draw back into, all of that's perishable. Everything around you is perishable. It's perishing with the using. But this word, this imperishable word, is the good news that was preached to you that you believed. It is the true grace of God. It is imperishable and enduring. That's the point. 
All right. So if what we need to have in this purity is a brotherly love, that phileo love, and an agape love to serve one another earnestly, what would be the other side of that coin? So, since we are supposed to have a purity of soul, love, and heart for each other, and we have done so, we've entered into this relationship based upon an imperishable word, we should guard the way that we interact with each other. Fiery trial has come upon you, right? Don't start blaming each other. When the church is in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this persecution, get rid of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Okay, again, I don't believe there's a whole lot here in the Greek definitions I'm here that, 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 that separate these things. The English words work well enough here for, for, for your understanding. Malice and deceit toward each other, okay? Don't let malice, that, that hot hit hatred, start to, to boil up among you. It's, it's not your brother's fault. It's not your sister's fault. None of, the, none of this is, everything's here according to the foreknowledge of God. Don't get angry with each other. Don't be deceitful with each other. Don't, put, don't be hypocritical in your dealings with brethren. Get rid of all of envy because you may be suffering the way that somebody else isn't. Get rid of all slander. You know, it may be on both sides. Somebody isn't suffering. You say, okay, they're a sellout. Somebody is suffering. You, you, you turn like Job's friends. You think, okay, what'd they do wrong? Get rid of all of that evil thought. All of that which causes distrust, causes harm among you, you need to stick together right now. All right? Get rid of all of that. Put away all of that. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Okay? Love, love that. Like newborn infants. That's what he's just purified soul in obeying the truth, sincere love, love one another with a pure heart. Don't let it become cynical. Don't let it become suspicious, envious, heated toward each other. Stay pure. Stay innocent. Stay innocent in this period of time. Long for pure spiritual milk. Don't settle for counterfeit. Don't turn to other sources. Turn to God. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, if you if you understand or sense you have tasted, you know, you should know the goodness of God. Okay, that that's that's where you started. You, you obeyed this gospel. You 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 heard this good news that was proclaimed to you and you believed it. Okay. And and, and your faith, your faith all the way back up here in the early early part of this chapter, your faith, it's being tested, but it's genuine. It's more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by tested by fire. Okay, your faith is better than that. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Okay, that we, we keep talking, those that, that imagery keeps coming back. It's pure, it's imperishable, it is remaining, it's enduring, it's abiding. You know all of these things. You have heard this good word of the Lord and you obeyed it. You 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 purified your souls in obeying this truth. 
you know the goodness of God. Nothing in your circumstance has caused that to change. You know God is good. If you know God is good, then you know the food, the milk that he is providing you is good. Now, there's a, the, the connection here can't, can't help but be, be a, 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 a seen. You have to see this, okay? As a, new, a newborn infant, desire the pure spiritual milk. The connection between that and the being able to put away and, if you will, keep away from you, the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy is not to be missed here. Do not stop feasting on the truth of God's goodness and of, of the milk that he is providing you. And I love that phrase that by it, by his word, you may grow up into salvation. Okay, did they already have salvation? Well, they, he already says back up in chapter one, you have an inheritance reserved in heaven. It's imperishable, undefiled, fades not away. You already have that inheritance. You know you have it. How are you going to get through? How are you going to, 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 well, to stand together, keep the church together? And how are you individually going to get through this fiery trial that's come upon you? How are you going to get to the other side of that and receive ultimately the saving of your souls? How are you going to get there? Peter's, Peter's approach to this is simple. Like newborn infants desire this pure spiritual milk. You can't feed a newborn infant anything other than, well, before the, the as I say, before the creation of instant formula, formula uh, but we don't have that anymore, apparently. But what, what food is designed for a newborn infant? His or her mother's milk. You can't feed a newborn infant anything other than that. I don't think this passage is, is a distinction between, you know, like, like Hebrews chapter 5, where, where you make the distinction between milk and meat. The Hebrews writer says that you, the time has come that you ought to be teachers, but you have need that somebody teach you again the things that be the first principles of the oracles of God and have become those who need milk and not strong meat. Okay, I don't think that's the point here. I don't think he's comparing... The, 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 the pure spiritual milk, meaning you need to desire the simple truths of the Bible. I don't think that's what he means. Um, whereas the Hebrews writer is talking about simplistic things. And at this point in your life, your, 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 um, uh, your senses should be exercised by, by the, uh, 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 or, uh, um, you have exercised your senses to, by, by reason of use. There's a phrase I'm looking for, to the discerning of good and evil. Okay, I don't think that's the comparison here. He says, like a newborn infant, desire pure spiritual milk. Because that's the only food that an infant understands. That's the only food designed for an infant is its mother's milk. You can put that filet mignon in front of a, a newborn infant. Okay, he or she's not going to respond to it doesn't know what it is, would not nourish him. It's not food for him. There's only one source of food for the infant, and it comes from his mother. 
think that's the point. There is only one source of food. If you try to feed an infant, a newborn infant, if you could take that 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 fillet and 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 put it in a blender and puree it, which is just sacrilege. Please don't ever do that. Uh, but if you did that and you put it into some kind of of smoothie that maybe you could get down the throat of of a of a of a newborn infant, would he be able to digest it? Would it help him, or would it hurt him? Hey. It's not good for him. Not, not food for him. There's one source of food. And I believe that's Peter's point here. There's one source of food. As a newborn infant, you need to be filling your belly. By that, of course, we would mean the actual application of it, the heart, mind, soul. You need to be filling it with the nutrition, the nourishment that comes from God. That mother's milk that comes from her breast is, 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 is from her. It's, it's her essence being delivered as nourishment and nutrition to her baby. That's what it is. Okay? That's what, he, that's what it would be. And that's what God's word is. It is his essence, his nature, his mind, his character distilled into words. And it is the only path by which we, as his children, as his infants, can grow. There is no other nutrition. There is no other food source that nourishes our soul. It is the only one. So here we are, the elect exiles of the dispersion, dealing with trial, apparently doubting whether or not we should continue the path that we're on, doubting whether or not this is the true grace of God. Maybe as you, as as if you take this up here in verse 22 as a reminder, and, and maybe a needed reminder because Peter was questioning the sincerity of their love, was questioning the purity of their hearts toward one another. Maybe they were being, if you in that sense, malnourished. They weren't getting the strength and the fortification from the from the, the nutrients that they were consuming. Maybe they were listening to some of those scoffers that Peter talks about in the second book, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Maybe he, they were listening to some of those individuals who were starting to doubt, doubt God and, and complaining about the um, complaining about the judgment that was coming upon them. Maybe all of that was going on. Maybe they had allowed that corruption, that taint, to enter into their into their food sources. Who knows? But if they had, that would explain this. There was no purity to their food. And because of that, what happens if you don't feed a baby? If you don't give a baby the food that he or she needs, what happens? He gets angry. He starts crying and he starts lashing out because he doesn't understand. Just does. I wonder if that's happening in the church. I wonder if that's happening to the saints in, in Asia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Galatia and so on. I wonder if that's happening there. Don't do it. You want to solve that problem? 
turn back to the spiritual or the spiritual milk and understand that God is good. And since, and I love that phrase that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Obviously, it's a play on words there about the spiritual food, the spiritual milk that you're supposed to be consuming. You've tasted it. You don't have to convince a baby. Once it, once the baby learns to latch on to, to the mother's breast, you don't have to convince a baby to do it again. Once the baby figures out, oh, the, this is good. I like the food that's coming out of here. The next time you, you put that baby up against its mother's breast, once it's learned how to do that, once it's tasted, once the baby's learned to latch on and has experienced that goodness, that baby keeps coming back and back and back and back and back and back. You don't have to convince the baby to do that. That source of food is good every single time. Once you've figured that out, you keep coming back. Except these saints, apparently, that Peter is writing to, maybe they were forgetting that. Maybe they weren't turning back to their food source over and over and over again. Maybe they were starting to, to, to blend in some of the philosophies of the world around them. And Peter's message to them is you need to get back and eat the food that's designed for you. Sometimes we talk about growing spiritually, and, and I know I know why we do it, but, you know, because I guess preachers have to have three points in their outline. So a preacher will get up and start talking about spiritual growth, and we'll talk about all sorts of things. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying those sermons are wrong. I'm not. This is not an either-or type, type situation, but, you know, we talk about growing through prayer. We talk about growing through fellowship. We talk about growing through whatever. We talk all kinds of different things that we can grow through. I don't. I don't know of any um, any other actual source of of growth than God's word. You, Old King James says, you desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Second uh, Peter, the end of Second Peter, Second Peter three. Peter says that you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The reason that the reason that God's word is the source of all spiritual growth is because it's the only place where our mind is transformed to his mind. That doesn't happen in prayer. In prayer, he's not talking to me. I'm talking to him. I may get burdens off my chest, but I don't learn anything more about him. The only way I learn more about him is to take his nutrients in and consume them and have his nutrients grow up my character. You don't grow spiritually, no matter what you do. You don't grow spiritually without God's word. You just don't. You be, if, you, if you've been a Christian for 50 years, if you're not studying, that's preaching to the choir here with the people that show up on digital Bible study day after day after day after day after day. But if you're not studying God's word, you're not growing. I don't care what you're doing in the church. You may be leading all the prayers. You may be leading all the singing. Frankly, you may be the preacher sometimes. I've seen preachers that have been preaching the same outlines um, you know, I, I attended the I attended the church one time for for a little while. About eighteen months in, I started hearing the preacher that I hear, hearing the preacher that we had start repeating his outlines, and it wasn't just one or two. I'm like, dude, you don't have more than eighteen months. You've been what's going on here, man? Just started repeating his outlines over and over again, same stories and everything. It wasn't just it was the same text he was teaching; it was the same exact sermon. I'm like, do you not think somebody's going to remember that at some point? I mean, you might get away with it once, but that much? Okay, so sometimes it's preachers that aren't exactly killing themselves in terms of Bible study. If you're not studying the Bible, you're not growing, period. Full stop. 
And if you're not studying the Bible, you're not going to be able to do what's here in verse number one. You want to put away those kind of feelings, malice and deceit and hypocrisy in the, in the time of trouble. You want to put those away and keep them away? See, all of that's a sign of malnutrition, if you will, to use the metaphor of this section. All of that's a sign of malnutrition. You're, turn, you're turning to things that do not feed the soul. And particularly in a time of trial like First Peter, this is going to be the response. Okay, Now, in a time of plenty, not a time of trial and dep deprivations, the grievous trials that are earlier in this text. In a time of plenty, this list might be different. In a time of plenty, it might be lasciviousness and sensuality and, 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 and something of that nature. But in a time of trial, you're going to get angry and suspicious and mean and all of that, just like we started with our, our analogy of this section. You're going to get hangry spiritually. And the only thing that will stop that hangry, the only thing that will stop this infant from, from, from lashing out to, or to, to, toward those around him is the proper source of food. If this is going on inside your church, there's a reason. The reason of it, well, it could just be the, the hard-heartedness of the people, but the root cause is that church has gone too long without God's word. It's malnourished. It's malnourished, and that was fine when things were easy. But when things get hard, we start looking at people to blame. And in the midst of trial, that is exactly what they did. They turned on each other. To what degree? I don't know that Peter says. But this, <laughs> you know what happened some, or else this verse wouldn't be in the Bible. It happened. They turned on each other because they were lacking the wrong spiritual nourishment. So, verse 4. Again, we haven't changed topics here. Not too much time. I've got 25 minutes, okay? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him should not be put to shame. Okay? Let me go ahead and just read this because the, the thought continues at least down to verse 9. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay? A lot to unpack there. First of all, as I have held throughout this study, and I will continue to hold because I think it to be right, I just want to point it out again. Notice the structure of this section. The whole thought here of this section is based upon a few Old Testament, well, several Old Testament concepts, okay? Um, the living stone, the spiritual house, the holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices. Uh, I mean, I could, you know, check your center column references because when I hover over them, you should be able to see them. 
I try to do that from time to time as we study through. So you may be able to see them if you, if you can on the screen large enough. But all of these, every nearly every phrase here has some kind of other biblical, particularly Old Testament uh, quotation, Old Testament citation. Uh, Isaiah 28, for example, on that one. Okay. Um, and you have it all the way down through here. Psalm 118. Um, and then again, um, Isaiah 814. All of this is based upon Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament images of the priesthood and of the temple and of the worship of God. Another reason I think this book is so heavily Jewish, just another example of it. This line of argumentation would not carry nearly as much weight as it would for the Jews. Now, before we go through it line by line, I want to skip on down to the bottom of the line. Okay? They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Okay? Um, as they were destined to do. We have talked at some length about the idea of predestination. We did it in our Roman study. Um, I believe the concept of predestination is, again, a Jewish, a Jewish thing, uh, as we have seen. Um, I'll make this the New King James here. In Ephesians chapter 1, there are only a couple of passages, by the way, that talk about predestination in your Bible. It's not like it's a very common um, um, uh, concept in the Bible. But look at what he says, in, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. I think I said 3 just a second ago. I'm in Ephesians 1. Um, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. Okay, there is the phrase predestined. One of the few times that is used, and it specifically identifies what the predestination is and what it was for. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, a lot of times Bible students just read this, and they read adoption as sons as just is synonymous with being saved. I don't think it is. I think it's something very specific. Now, obviously, it results in salvation, yes, but I believe it's something very specific in the New Testament text. I don't think the word predestined is here. Um, uh, the same language is found over in Galatians 4, right? Verse 4, Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that's who we're talking about here. We're talking about the Jews, those who, who were under the law. No Gentile was under the law. In order to be under the law, the first thing a Gentile had to do was forsake his Gentileness and become a Jew. No Gentile ever served under the law. It's a Jewish covenant. To redeem those that were under the law, that we who were under the law might receive the adoption as sons. God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, Mary, born under the law, the law of Moses, to redeem those who, Jews, were under the law of Moses, that we, Jews, who were living under the law of Moses, 
might receive the adoption of sons. That's what that verse means. I know that that's right. Because Paul says in Romans 9, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, Jews who were under the law. Jews, national Jews, not those who are circumcision of the heart, but his countrymen, those physical countrymen. Who are the Israelites? In case you had any doubt, the Israelites. To whom pertains the adoption? I have no doubt in my brain whatsoever that the adoption belonged to the Jews. Now, when we studied Romans 8 and 9, I went through a whole two or three day study on this topic. I am not going to repeat that now. Go back and find our lessons on uh, our study of Romans chapter 8. They're on the website. They're on uh, Facebook and YouTube still. And, and just go back and l listen to those. Again, it's lengthy. It's 20 something hours of teaching, it's, uh, but it's there. Okay. Um, to whom pertains the adoption? I, you know, the, the short answer is, I believe it's those first century saints, particularly those first century Jews, particularly those who accepted the baptism of John, that were then added to the body. Now, I, I, I as you get into the practical application of that, I'll broaden it out, broaden it, broaden it out. Excuse me, some, but the base of it, the core of it, is the baptism of John. That's what I think it's talking about. Um, more complex than that, but that's my short answer because if I just leave it there, there's some questions you need to ask me in follow-up. If you understand what I'm talking about, you will ask me some follow-up questions and I will point you back to the Roman study because that's why that study took so long, okay? But I believe that's the core of it. The beginning point of the adoption, let me say it that way, commenced with the baptism of John. It's Jewish. I say all that to say this. Peter writes about a group of people that were destined to disobey God's word. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, they stumble because they disobey the God's word and they were destined to do so. Okay, um, They disobey. Here's another present participle. So this, this process is continuing for them. They have rejected and they are continuing to reject the offer of the head cornerstone or the chief cornerstone, rather. So they've turned away from the Christ, and they were destined to do that. And to the point that Peter writes First Peter, they are continuing to do that. Now, if I am going to hold, thank you, Travis. Um, um, he, went, he went back and found it for us. Uh, from the deep end, lesson 1080 for information on adoption. Thank you, Travis. I, I, I did not know which lesson that was. Okay. It might surprise you that since I hold the book of 1 Peter is written to a largely Jewish audience, and I believe that predestination for adoption is a Jewish concept, guess what I also believe? That those who were destined not to obey God's word might just be the other side of the coin from those who were predestined for adoption. I think those go together. Okay, I think those go together. An offer 
was put forth, first and foremost primarily to the Jews. An offer was put forth to them, and a cornerstone was 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 cut and put in cut and put down as the beginning of that foundation for that new spiritual temple that was being built. And they had the first chance to believe it or to reject it. So the stone that the builders rejected, okay? Who are the builders? The stone that the builders rejected. It's not the Gentiles. I think he's talking there about the Jews. Became the chief cornerstone. The builders, particularly the Jewish leadership, in practicality, in practical terms at least, rejected the cornerstone. They, it became to them a stone of offense, a stone of stumbling. They stumbled over it, and they continue to stumble because they continue to reject that he is the Christ. And they were destined to do it. So we go back to the book of Romans, okay? And that's where Paul goes immediately after saying that, pre that adoption belongs to the Jews, and he immediately jumps into this, this discussion about God rejecting Israel and whether or not that God was righteous in the rejection of Israel. Okay, and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because keep listening to those lessons on Romans and we'll go all the way through chapter 9 uh, for this. But you have within this section, um, is God unrighteous? Uh, does he find fault with us even though we have resisted his will and so on? And he says in verse number 22, what if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for the destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he had prepared for beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Okay? Not of the Jews only, but that would include the Jews. Now he's going to say Gentiles that had been prepared beforehand for glory then who are these vessels that had been prepared for destruction? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Is it not taking effect? For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. If all of Israel is not going to be saved, is the word actually the word? That's the question. You get over into chapter 11, and Paul finishes out this thought in chapter 11. Well, actually, um, I could go to the end of chapter 10, but um, we get to 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Not, not, in, not, in, not in whole, because Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God cast away his people whom he foreknew? Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how God pleads with, uh, how, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they've torn down your idols. I alone am left to seek, and they, they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Elect exiles of the dispersion back in chapter one of First Peter. And if I mean grace, it's no longer by works and so on. But here's the point. Even at this present time, there is, an, there is a remnant of those predestined for adoption that remains. There's still, there's still Israel inside this new kingdom. But understand, these people that he foreknew, and by the way, there's that language again. Those that, where, where is that? Um, is that later in the, in the text? I just read it a second ago. Um, it must be later in the text. I just read it. I mean, it was like, 
this is what happens when you switch over to a version you don't use all the time. The, 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 the language is not right. I literally just read this. The people that he foreknew, the elect have obtained it, okay? Uh, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but again, the elect that has obtained it, the rest were blinded. So there is the elect. Somebody find that verse for me. I just, I literally just read it. The people that he foreknew. He cast away his people, seed of Abraham, cast down his people with whom he, oh, there, there it is. That's the problem. It was on two different lines. Has God not cast away his people whom he foreknew? Okay. See, here are the people that he foreknew. Here are the people that the, the elect, the elect remnant, the election of grace, the elect Jewish. Okay. Might, get, might give you help back here in, in, in Romans chapter 8. Great. And these things work together for those who, who love God, to those who are called according to, a pro, pro, or to his purpose, for whom he foreknew. People who he foreknew, chapter 11. Paul didn't change topics between 8 and 11. He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his sons, be adopted among that number. To whom pertains that? Um, moreover, the ones he pre-knew, he called, he called, he justified, he justified, he also has glorified. What shall we say then? If God's for us, who can be against us? God did not spare, spare him up. Who shall lay anything against the charge of God's elect? I think this is all Jewish. Start to finish, I think he's talking about the Jews. Okay? But get all the way down then and back into chapter 11, and then you get this whole concept of there's a remnant chosen by grace, elect remnant chosen by grace. The elect have obtained it. But then he says, um, their failure, their, their, their fall is for the riches of the world. Their, their failure for the riches of the Gentile, how much more shall their fullness be? So the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And then he says, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, okay? Do not boast against the branches because they were broken off in order for you Gentiles to have a place to come into the kingdom. I believe that's what he's talking about right here. They were broken off to give you a place in the kingdom, okay, to the Gentiles. Now, back here to the Jews. What would the Jewish perspective of that same thing be? The Jewish perspective of other Jews falling away, of rejecting the Christ, as a nation turning their back on the Christ, if you were a Jew looking at that, you would look at this and say, now wait a minute, has not God cast away his people? And if that's the case, that, that, that's unthinkable to the Jew. You know, this whole thing began 30 years ago before Peter writes this. This whole thing began with a conversation in, 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 in Acts 10 and 11 when Peter gets back to Jerusalem. It begins with a conversation that says, listen, um, um, what are we going to do about these Gentiles? Peter, why did you go into the house of Cornelius and begin to teach, to teach in the house of Cornelius the gospel? Why did you do that? Peter gives his defense of it. When I saw they had received the like gift as, I, as we had at the beginning, who was I that I could withstand God? So Peter gets it right. 
in, in Acts chapter 15, the conversation comes up again. What about these Gentiles? They need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's what some of the Pharisee, believers who were Pharisees began to teach, Acts 15, 4 and 5. That's what they began to teach over there. Peter again says, listen, guys, you know how that uh, some time ago, God chose me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he, he put no distinction between the Gentiles and us, giving them the same gift that he can provide us, purifies their hearts by faith, purifies our hearts by faith. James, who is very, very zealous of the law, very much a staunch defender of the law of Moses. James says, listen, we should not trouble these Gentiles. We should not trouble them any more than we need to. I tell them to abstain from fornication, from things offered to, offered to idols, uh, from things strangled with blood, but we, we need to leave them alone. But get the point at that point. The point at that point is, hey, they are, uh, 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 Travis, and that's not my microphone rumbling a lot. We have some, the, there's, a, the, 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 we, we have some the, 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 there's a vacuum cleaner running in the other room. And it's, we have tile floors and it makes a lot of noise. And I'd have to stop and stop the program and all that. So hopefully that will stop in just a moment. Very unfortunate time for the vacuum cleaner to come on. So hopefully that'll go off in, in a minute now. But that's it's not the microphone. It's just background noise. And I don't have my noise gate turned up loud enough to, fr frankly, if I turned up my noise gate loud enough to stop that, it would probably cut off the stream as well. So hopefully that'll be um, go, go away here shortly. Anyway, um, but it started in Acts 15 of, hey, that's great. We don't need to trouble them. They're welcome to be here and so on. You go down the stream of time, 30 years, from that point or 25 years or so from that point and you're a Jew and the Gentiles are starting to come in and come in and come in. And this church is becoming heavily Jewish and easily by this time, the church is particularly in Pontus and Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, all those places away from Jerusalem. The church would not just have Gentiles in it. The church at this point would probably be a majority Gentile. So you've been sitting there for 30 years watching your church that was Jewish when it started slowly and slowly and slowly over the progress of time become more and more Gentile. And you keep seeing your nation get farther and farther away, starting to circle back in, 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 in itself, starting to rebel against, you know, against Rome. And depending on where you date first Peter, maybe having successfully, at least it appears, I think it's probably too early for that, but maybe, Maybe you've seen Vespasian lose a couple of battles in, 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 in Judea area, which he did, by the way. The Jews actually won some fights against the Romans. Maybe you're starting to see some of that. And your temptation is to fall back, to go back. What Peter is reminding them is, listen, again, this is not strange. This is not in any way remarkable okay not remarkable in any way whatsoever this is exactly what was foretold it was always destined that they the builders would reject the cornerstone do not ever lose the lead of what's being written in a book peter is writing this entire section from verse 4 down to verse 8 trying to help them to understand that what you're doing here, you are truly being built up as a spiritual house. You will be the place where a holy priesthood stands. You will be the place where spiritual sacrifices are offered to God. 
in contrast to the temple, which at the time Peter writes this book, is still there. And the priesthood is still there. The Hebrews writer, once again, we're going to connect First Peter to Hebrews, right? Because you can't, apparently we can't study Hebrew, First Peter without studying Hebrews. Uh, the, more I, the more I think about it, the, the connection between these books is just so, so immensely tight. But that's Hebrews chapter 8. There are priests which offer sacrifices according to the law in Israel at the time Peter's writing this. And so there's your contrast. A growing national sentiment among the Jews, a failing of the, at least in terms of the percentages of Jews among the church, more and more Gentiles coming in, fewer and fewer Jews. The Jews looking at this, as Paul writes Romans saying, has God cast off his people? Paul's response is, of course not. There's a remnant chosen by grace. I'm part of it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a seed of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't cast off his people. I'm here. I'm living proof of it. Peter's saying the same thing. Listen, that's not the case. You are the true spiritual house of God. You are the place. And Isaiah prophesied that a, stumble, a stone of stumbling would be laid in Zion, and, there, and the people that are falling away were always destined to fall away from it. That was always a part of the plan of God. Okay? So I got 958, 959. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this thing up, try and stop on time today. I, as I said earlier, I don't think Truth Tuesday is on today, but I just got a notification saying we have a stream about to start. And I'm not sure how that's... Uh, um, I don't know what stream that would be that's about to start. Maybe... But anyway, I'm going to go ahead and get off. I don't think we have a stream starting until 11, but I just got a notification on my watch saying Digital Bible Study has scheduled a, a, a stream to start. We may have something about to start. I don't know what it is, if it is. Um, but I don't think we do until 11 o'clock. Uh, 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 Tony Brewer and Aaron Dotson will be on at 11 o'clock for Christianity Now. Uh, and we'll see you back here, at least I will, tonight at 11 o'clock for the continuation of the Connect meeting uh, with Brother Melvin Ote. So, uh, until then, uh, go out and make your day a great one for God, and I'll see you back here uh, just uh, as soon as we can this evening. Have a good day, everybody.